Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Archit Guha, your host for this podcast, and today I'm in conversation with Aditya Balasubramaniam. Aditya Balasubramaniam is Senior Lecturer in History at the Australian National University in Canberra. His research focuses on various aspects of the history of modern and particularly post-colonial South Asia. His first book, which we will be discussing today on this podcast, titled Toward a Free Economy, Swatantra and Opposition Politics in Democratic India, was published by Princeton University Press in July 2023. It blends a history of political economy and the socio-cultural milieu in post-independent India, narrated from the vantage point of the Swatantra Party, Democratic India's first economically conservative outfit. It was shortlisted for the 2023 Elder Prize in the Social Sciences of the American Institute of Indian Studies. Today, we discuss many aspects of Aditya's process in researching and writing the book and what the place of key concepts like neoliberalism and libertarianism are in the South Asian context. Hi, Aditya. Welcome uh, to the New Books Network. And thank you for being in conversation uh, with us today, discussing your uh, new book, Toward a Free Economy. Thank you so much for, for having me on the on the show, uh, Archit. Uh, it's a, really a privilege to, to be a part of this series. I uh, gained a lot, so much from the New Books Network over the years, and I think the way in which the it curates such thoughtful conversations about books is quite special. It's a there are there are many un, uh, sad and unfortunate trends taking place in the academy right now, but uh, amidst that kind of gloomy backdrop, uh, New Books Network is certainly one of the good uh, forces for uh, for I think uh, positive change and things to be things to be. Uh, generally uh, pleased about so that's wonderful to hear um Aditya and uh, I'm glad that it's been of uh, use to you in this this journey to writing the book and and that's going to be my first question as well um to, to have you for our ris- listeners reflect on um you know your journey to writing this book and um how you came upon the idea and of course since this is your first book, this is also a, a larger sort of intellectual um, project that you've had and you've stayed with for, for a while. So if you could just uh, tell us more about, um, you know, the history of this book and, um, you know, your, your own journey to writing it, that'd be great. Yeah, so I suppose the best place to, to start uh, to answer this question is think about the way in which I got interested in uh, the history of uh, the Indian economy, the Nehruvian period. And I think that that story is very closely connected to my experiences growing up 
uh, as an Indian in the diaspora or in American-born confused, they see American-born complex, they see the hyphen Indian-American, whichever way you want to, 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 to call that. Um, and so I especially used to spend every summer um, visiting my uh, family in Chennai and in, in New Delhi. And I was born in 1990. And in 1991, the Indian economy was liberalized. So every year I kind of got a chunk uh, a snapshot of change that I saw uh, taking place in India from my own very privileged perspective. And I also was able to hear a narrative germinating, germinating among a particular managerial class about the transformation of the Indian economy uh, and about how, starting with Nehru, things had been on a different track that were, that were being course-corrected. Uh, and I kind of became curious about that and investigating that uh, from a scholarly perspective, right? And I suppose the culmination of that effort, uh, which began as an undergraduate, as an undergraduate thesis, uh, is this book that that has emerged. That book actually started as a, a project, a, a senior thesis project when I was an undergraduate uh, on... John Kenneth Galbraith and his time as an economist uh, advising the Planning Commission in the 50s versus his subsequent uh, time in India as the ambassador uh, in the Kennedy administration. But as I was researching for that project in the Kennedy Library in Boston, I encountered an Indian critique of planning in the newspaper clippings and all of that that I um, was encountering. And so in that context, I felt it's actually more interesting to explore these actors uh, and the things that they're saying, which led me to, to Swatantra and the free economy critique of um, Indian planning and subsequently the political project um, that, uh, that they bring into bring into being uh, in the 1960s uh, so that that was those are the sort of origins and then during the course of my phd research i began to drill down more deeply into the personalities that i had discovered to look at things like caste patterns of uh, accumulation of the communities that they represented uh, an attention to kind of regional analysis what perhaps then this prompts us to say about the Nehruvian era at large, uh, Cold War battle of ideas. And then I also became interested in thinking about moving from English to Indian languages uh, and comparing the discourses that you see emerge um, you know, across uh, linguistic boundaries. So uh, that was one thing. I think the other... Thing that happened was, of course, a certain familiarity with historical methods um, as I you know, entered graduate school and started to pay attention to how history was written. And I would say that there's not a whole lot of post-colonial history relative to pretty well-established field that is the history of colonial India. And so it was a combination of reading 
studies of political economy and political science written in the 1960s and 70s, uh, post-colonial theory, uh, particularly the more historically minded work of Sridhuto uh, Kaviraj, uh, and then also the the methodologically the social history of ideas of other parts of the world. And I think that that kind of provided me with with bearings about how to who to uh, set as interlocutors and how to think about writing such a history. So Aditya, um, if you can ground our listeners in the historical moment that this is taking place in, um, in terms of, um, you know, the emergence of the, the independent nation state of India and the kind of political consensus around um, Nehruvian socialism, um, which as you kind of um, point out in the book as well, um, takes on um, a, a very mixed character. It, it accommodates a lot and um, a lot of different viewpoints, uh, which also allows for something like um, the Swatantra Party to emerge. So if you can, if you can give listeners a sense of um, what exactly in, in this post-independence moment, um, the the political ground that was made for for this kind of um, experiment to be made possible uh, would be that would be great. Yeah, so I would say that there are a couple of things. I think the first is you have the assertion of a dominant economic imaginary by the uh, Nehruvian state, right, which is technically associated with. Import substitution, uh, import substituting industrialization with five-year planning, right? Um, a mixed economic model, for sure, but one in which the private sector receives, sorry, the public sector receives the priority of investment, right? And in terms of the ideological domain, it is one that is associated with, um, you know, nation building, unity, uh, socialist ideals right um, and I spent a lot of time in the first chapter of the book trying to convey how this is um, something that the state takes pains to publicize um, as something that is not merely economic but a form of uh, you know a form of national culture in a manner of speaking right um, but at the same time, this is a system in which India has democracy uh, and one in which there is space for dissent to emerge. Um, there are heterogeneous interest groups right, that develop um, out of this project, uh, one in which, for example, <clears throat> you have the rise of um, bureaucrats associated with the expanding state. Right, who become more powerful and control um, increasingly certain levers of economic uh, power, uh, governing scarce resource distribution. Uh, you have the emergence of regional business, uh, particularly sort of small and medium scale. Um, and in the book, the ones that I look at are primarily around you know, Western India, sort of crudely, um, and the South, right? Um, and you also have the emergence of uh, or you have the, the growth of professional class uh, that is reading newspapers, commenting on 
uh, interpreting what's happening uh, in in government policy, um, trying to make sense of India as this independent nation state on a uh, on a, in a in a global scale in a world in which the Cold War is you know slowly intensifying, etc. So that is very much the um, background against which what I call free economy uh, develops, right? And the way in which free economy develops is through a networked cluster of associations, uh, newspapers, magazines that are based in urban India, but reach the Mofasal. Um, they are at, headed by people who were uh, involved in anti-colonial politics, but are also crucially um, anti-imperial as much as they are anti-statist. And so dealing with the incursion uh, of the state into different domains of life is something um, that they take it upon as their new responsibility in the post-colonial period. Uh, and the association with which I start the book, um, the library of which is still in existence today in Bombay, is the Libertarian Social Institute run by uh, a man named Ranchod Das Lotwala and his daughter Kusum Lotwala, um, who's a, a mill owner, uh, who later becomes a, a, a kind of philanthropist, um, a promoter of various kinds of uh, ideological causes, moves from the left to the right. Um, and that becomes a way, a sort of vehicle into uh, the history of free economy and the political project in which it be- with which it becomes associated, which is the Swatantra or Freedom Party. Right. Um, thanks. And yeah, I, I, I think this is, um, is a useful way for listeners to get a sense of the, um, the terrain that you're covering in terms of both the, the actual kind of official um, formation of Swatantra as qua uh, a political party um, in in a proper kind of electoral democratic sense, but also um, you know the circulation of of knowledge, which you as you point out is going is is not just limited to the urban centers, but also um, you know uh, travels outside of these these cities, these, um, and then goes into the Mafasal or um, the hinterland. Um, I'm wondering if, you know, it would be good for us to also get a sense of how that that kind of um, traveling actually happens. You you reference the library of Rancho Das Lotwala and um, Kusum Lotwala. Um, but, of course, in the book as well, you talk, quite a bit more extensively about, um, you know, the ways in which um, these periodicals and print culture more generally is developing um, around these questions and creating a knowledge base um, for um, young, you know, not necessarily young, but uh, young in terms of the, the, the country's age, uh, voters, um, to get a sense of um, the alternative to to what is in power um, at the at the political center. So yeah. yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that is taking place at this time is that every year new uh, media outlets are being founded. 
Um, circulation figures for newspapers are rising. There's a wonderful series published by the government of India called Press in India that kind of gives you a sense of in, in various languages what are the uh, you know most circulated uh, uh, newspapers, but also you know whoever has decided to, to submit their forms that year and you know do the do the registration, so you get a sense of you know fairly obscure publications, but also ones that are you know your Times of India, um, Hindustan Times, etc. So basically, in this context uh, of you know, growing literacy, increasing number of periodicals. Um, Indians are also starting to read as citizens uh, of, of a country in which they have a stake that they did not have before, right? And this is taking place in English, but it's also in perhaps more dramatically taking place in Indian languages in which the circulation figures for um, newspapers and magazines actually in many, in many cases kind of dwarf uh, what you see for their English language counterparts. And so one of the things that I, I do in the book is to think about how a discourse like free economy, a terminology that is coined by the likes of Lotwala, <clears throat> is spread across the English language um, you know, elite uh, a public sphere, um, but also penetrates into regional publics uh, through newspapers, through intermediaries who are bilingual, uh, who are political or uh, figures or publicists, um, and have a stake both in their Indian language um, uh, acumen as well as the kind of national media, uh, and what kind of mediation of these ideas takes place um, and becomes more localized, uh, becomes more related to uh, state level rather than national level issues, but of course, in conversation with those things. So to take one example, you have the Swarajya magazine of Madras, uh, which is uh, you know written in every week by Siraj Gopalachari and the far more widely circulated Kalki magazine in Tamil, uh, which has a circulation of maybe six or seven times as much and is, you know, allegedly a sort of culture magazine, but uh, to Swarajya's economic and political affairs uh, magazine, but it has a weekly section on politics. Um, it has a weekly section on, you know, he, here are Rajgopalachari's uh, thoughts, etc. And so there is, and it also has a kind of um, didactic occasional series on the economy. Um, and so some of these ideas are uh, um, kind of rewritten uh, with the with the Tamil speaking audience in mind, which is often right, um, not a group of people that are living in 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 Chennai uh, or you know, what was then called you know Madras in English, um, but are in the Mofassal. They're responding to localized you know rural concerns uh, and. And so the, the language has to be translated appropriately. So in one, for example, cartoon that you see in Kalki that I reproduce in the book, you have the finance minister C.D. Deshmukh as a farmer, uh, you know, bare-chested, um, who is essentially, you know, carrying a towel of, of sorts and kind of chasing away uh, a goat from a sapling 
to make sure the goat doesn't eat the sapling. The sapling is called second five-year plan. The goat is called deficit. Uh, and the farmer is labeled as deshmuk. Uh, and there's a kind of cynicism uh, that is conveyed in the caption saying, you know, getikara uh, kavalkarar, which is uh, essentially a, uh, you know, um, a highly competent guard saying that he's essentially chasing away the the deficit from uh you know consuming the the five second five year plan and saying that look there's nothing to worry about things will be taken care of um, and so it's a way for example of reaching out to somebody who is you know maybe in a small small town um or, or in in you know a in a in a village uh, of kind of trying to convey in an idiom that may be more intelligible uh, for the concerns of a largely agrarian economy at that point, right? So, yeah, no, that's that's really great. Um, I wonder if um, it would be good for us to also kind of reflect a little bit on who C. Rajagopalachari was as as a figure, you know, as um, both uh, a Tamil intellectual and, and very much rooted in the cultural politics of um, of Madras and, and the Tamil country more broadly, but also as this kind of national figure who now in, in the present moment may be kind of forgotten for various reasons, but um, bore um, particular importance at that um, at that particular juncture in terms of the the political prominence he had. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's it's interesting that despite Rajgopalachari's prominence in the nationalist movement, right, he is really the Gandhian par excellence in South India and brings uh, that part of the country behind the Congress on, in kind of under under. Uh, Sorry, he brings that part of the uh, of the country uh, behind the Congress with kind of Gandhian methods, right? Um, somebody who at one point is considered to be Gandhi's successor, um, someone who Gandhi describes as his conscience keeper, and through marriage of his Rajgopalachari's daughter to Gandhi's son is also a supposed relation of family, uh, but then kind of starts to fall out, particularly with the Quit India movement, um, which Rajgopalachari does not support, right, and is then kind of sidelined for Nehru. Um, and he occupies various posts, you know, Governor General of India, um, and then he's very briefly the uh, minister without portfolio, and then after Sardar Patel dies, you know, briefly Home Minister, <clears throat> but essentially is kind of a non-entity in terms of the Congress in post-colonial India, uh, goes into retirement um, and then is called, starts to write uh, his uh, um, Ramayana in uh, English, um, and which many of you may have, uh, many of the South Asianist listeners may have read, published by Bharati Vidya Bhavan, it's a sort of literary phenomenon, um, but then when the Congress fails to get a majority in the 1952 Madras elections, he is called in to um, be a part of a coalition government as the uh, chief minister. Uh, but um, he, this is a, a position that is uh, controversial uh, because he hasn't been elected and he's actually quite against some of the 
Congress people uh, running the the state party. And, you know, Raj Gopalachari in the regional context is always a very ambiguous figure because on the one hand, he does things like decontrols um, the price of food uh, in 1952, which is very popular. Uh, But on the other hand, both during his tenure as chief minister in 1952 and also earlier during his tenure as uh, as premier of Madras state from 1937 to 39, um, when the Congress first sort of take up the ministries, um, is associated with bigoted upper caste practice. So in 37, that's related to trying to push the national agenda or, or the Gandhian agenda of uh, introducing Hindi in schools, which the uh, self-respect movement, the Dravidian movement, uh, believes is a both an imposition by the North on the South and also a way in which Brahmins will perpetuate their uh, hegemony in society because they'll be able to learn Hindi, whereas the good Tamil-speaking majority will not be able to uh, learn and this will kind of perpetuate inequality. Um, And secondly, in 52 uh, to 54 period, he introduces something called the Hereditary Education Scheme, um, or Kulakalvitittam, in order to double the enrollment of people with uh, in, in schools. But by halving the time that everybody spends in school uh, and spending having students spend half the time uh, learning their hereditary occupation, which, of course, uh, the self-respect movement in uh, Tamil India uh, and the uh, and sort of progressive interests see as a form of uh, education that will reify uh, rather than dissolve caste. Uh, and that provides the, um, I suppose, the ammunition for uh, Rajgopalachari's opponents to bring down that government and send him back into kind of political exile. Um, during which time uh, he may be uh, without a, a formal job, but he's never inactive. So Rajgopalachari continues to write prolifically. He becomes associated with the Swaraja magazine and starts to critique what he believes to be the misguided steps of the uh, Congress in its advocacy of uh, what it calls a socialistic pattern of society and the steps uh, taken to to promote that vision. Um, And he becomes a self-styled kind of thinking man's dissenter against the Congress, Um, somebody who leans into his role as a kind of octogenarian uh, wise man um, and then becomes, uh, I suppose, a figure to whom others who are dissenting against the Nehruvian state will turn to for guidance and come together and found the Swatantra Party in 1959. Right. and yeah, I, I think this is this is also an important moment for us to consider what um, what the nature of electoral democracy at this point was as well, right? In terms of um, um, this, the Congress Party, which had a stronghold given its um, its presence in the you know pre-independence era, very strong kind of nationalist commitment and and uh, anti-colonial commitments. Um, but obviously, it was um, a party that wasn't without um, its its kind of 
dissidence and, and incoherence, as, as you point out. Um, it had various factions within it. Um, so if you can um, situate for us um, how, um, how this kind of one-party uh, system allows for um, a more burgeoning kind of ideological, um, uh, you know, um, progress in terms of thinking along different lines um, and how, um, as you point out towards the end in terms of, you know, um, Rajkopalachari really kind of um, not being this, like a sole spokesperson, um, but really bringing along with him um, uh, a band of followers that 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 is committed to this cause of Swatantra as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you. I think that's a really important uh, question because broadly the Indian National Congress is an umbrella organization. Right? We tend to associate it with your with your Gandhis and Nehru's, etc. Um, and and sure, those are the the figures uh, who are perhaps at any given time the most uh, visible, right? But really, it incorporates various different groups across the ideological spectrum that come from various regions of the country, right? And I suppose what remains, I think, the best way of understanding the politics of this period is the one-party dominant uh, system idea that is developed by the political scientist and founder of, you know, Center for the Study of Developing Societies, uh, Rajni Kotari, right? And under that... Uh, model of the one-party dominant system. You have the party of consensus, right, which is the Congress, uh, which has its own internal heterogeneity and groups that are trying to shape the agenda from within, right, and groups that had come together with, despite their differences, right, uh, they were all unhappy for different reasons with the uh, with colonial rule, but uh, they were unhappy with colonial rule. But then once colonial rule is over, they have very different visions of what the post-colonial uh, state should look like, right? Um, so you have this party of consensus and then you have opposition parties, right? And they are known as parties of pressure that operate along the margins, trying to co-opt groups within the party to help adjust the center of gravity, right? So that is how the one-party system, dominant system works in the in the Kotari model, which I think is a, is a very acute way of thinking about it. Um, now, what, when the Swatantra party comes along, right, it isn't particularly successful in and of itself at unseating this, but it sort of seeds the idea of what if instead of this, um, we have really viable opposition um, that gets together and at least pushes us towards a two-party model, right? That's the aspiration. Um, and by the time of the 1967 elections, when the Congress fails to form a majority in, um, in over half of the states and loses power in seven of 16 states, uh, this it's actually, and with Swatantra as the, again, not a, not a huge opposition party, but the biggest of the opposition parties, the official opposition in three states um, has 44 seats in the Lok Sabha, which doesn't seem like much today, but in the context of the times, it's kind of a very significant thing. Um, this is something that Raj Gopalachari has been agitating for from 1956. Um, and so it's an important uh, alternative uh, 
And I think it's something when we look at the history of post-colonial democracies, right? If we think of the African National Congress, for example, is something that uh, comes to mind in South Africa. Um, and the trajectory that is taken by a lot of them, um, I think the idea of having a strong two-party or multi-party system is an important one because as Rajgopalachari points out, when you have a charismatic leader and you have an organization that uh, can rest on its laurels attained during the uh, national movement, right? It's very easy to go down the spiral uh, toward authoritarianism, right? And of course, Rajgopalachari exaggerates Nehru's tendencies in uh, in this light. Uh, and I kind of take pains to point out uh, the way in which that rhetoric is doing political work rather than uh, accurately capturing um, uh, the, the, the grievances that people have. Um, but I think it is, it continue, it is an important um, critique that is leveled uh, at the time uh, in terms of thinking about, well, what kind of a republic do you want to have, right? And that, yes, even though, you know, at the time, perhaps there was an exaggeration of uh, Nehru and his influence, right? Um, I think after the, the Nehruvian period with the kind of ascent of of Indira Gandhi and such, a number of these fears uh, didn't seem so alarmist as they did at, at the time. Right. Yeah, no, and I think that's, that's really important for us to also kind of get a sense of the the bipartisan present, right, which which seems like um, very much um, something that um, came to be between, you know, the the BJP and the Congress, uh, but really there were these other kind of formations, um, Swatantra, uh, Swatantra um, Janta Party that, that predated, that allow us to kind of get a different texture to... Um, the ways that that bipartisan divide played out as well, um, apart from what we're we're experiencing today. Um, But I'd also kind of like us to reflect on the global dimensions uh, to this history, especially since so much of your work is grounded in presenting a history of uh, neoliberalism as, as a project, as an idea, um, in the Indian context, um, how would you, um, you know, situate that within the larger sort of Cold War era, um, both in terms of, um, you know, the ways that it played out um, in terms of if politics, but uh, in, in terms of global politics, but also how it um, seeped into the Indian context and, and created for something perhaps quite different, as, as yeah, you point so out. So I suppose it's important when we talk about neoliberalism to adopt some kind of a definition because neoliberalism is often used to connote you know, everything you don't like about the world from the 1970s or 80s, depending where you choose. Uh, I think it's, it's also... Um, sometimes it is thought of as a coherent ideology in the way that, for example, one thinks of, uh, uh, you know, communism, right, or the way in which somebody thinks of, of liberalism, right, and I think that it is much looser in that sense. Uh, it's certainly not um, something that we can talk about uh, with the level of theoretical coherence 
uh, of some of those other ideologies. Uh, I suppose, <clears throat> as I understand it, um, the, the most persuasive, I think, uh, um, description of neoliberalism is a is the one that's offered by Quinn Slobodian in his work on the interwar period, which is a you know expert driven project, right? to insulate markets from democratic politics and to create a kind of um, legal order in which markets can operate in an idealized form. Um, And subsequently, the ascent of neoliberalism is about the incursion of that particular market-style thinking um, and set of practices uh, uh, to create um, uh, you know, a, a perfect uh, market in various kinds of domains of uh, social uh, life, right? And, and again, economic being life being something that emerges out of the social. <clears throat> now, the institutional vehicle um, for the spread of neoliberalism right is one that isn't partaken purely of by experts right is it's is the montpelerin society which is founded in 1947 um, by a, a group of uh, economists like hayek journalists etc um, and they are seeking to reinvent liberalism in the era of central planning yes but also of keynesianism right and uh, and this is something that is very much a marginal kind of movement uh, in its in, in in its beginnings, right? And it doesn't really catch on until about the 1970s, uh, when the post-war economic order, right, uh, of which Keynes is an important author at Bretton Woods, uh, and the sort of governing wisdom for uh, you know, uh, for for poly- the paradigm in which uh, policy is conducted is broadly Keynesian, um, is kind of shaken up, right? Um, so where does India fit into this, right? I mean, it's conventionally understood that look, until 1991, India is operating uh, in its own way, and, you know, with with central planning, and really, it's only with the 1991 liberalization of economy, you kind of inaugurate this neoliberal era. Now, of course, historians uh, are trying to push that back and understanding how the pressure of international institutions on Indian economic policy, World Bank, IMF, that are often seen to be by the late 80s kind of captured by by neoliberal ideas, that in in responding to things like more aggressive loan conditionality uh, and this sort of thing, the Indian economy slowly moves towards 1991, although it it continues to be a big break. Um, And they look at figures in government like Manmohan Singh, Monte Kaluvalia, etc., and even sort of predecessors um, as people who help kind of pry things open when in moments of crisis. Um, So where does what I'm working on stand in relation to that. So I'm not trying to provide a prehistory of 1991 um, uh, by no means. And in fact, I don't think that, you know, you can draw a line from Swatantra to, uh, you know, the 1992 budget to today, which some people try to draw. Um, the point 
I suppose insofar as we look from the present is to think about which communities have um, disproportionately prospered from uh, the, the liberalization of the Indian economy. And it so happens that they are um, the, some of the communities, the Tamil Brahmins, the Kammas and Reddis of Andhra, the Charutar Patidars that got behind the Swatantra Party. Um, but there's also a connection that this book has to the global history of neoliberalism in terms of the points of contact that are established by the uh, Mortelaran society neoliberals, right, and people in India, uh, which I think is part of the history of neoliberalism, even though, as I argue, my actors are not neoliberals, uh, in that there are certain you know, methodological uh, orientation, for example, thinking that economics is positive rather than normative, methodological individualism, you know, interest in things like um, free international trade is something that's not shared by all of the members of the Satantra Party, right? Fixed versus floating exchange rates, you know, Milton Friedman's bugbear, not something that people of Swatantra care about. But there is a selective appropriation of certain kinds of rhetoric around issues like inflation, um, excess taxation, um, the tendency of bureaucracy to be inefficient. Uh, these sorts of things that some of the more polemical characters of the Montpellier society write about, which through um, people who are uh, connected uh, you know, like the economist B.R. Shanoi, um, the Swatantra actors uh, come into contact with this, this certain kinds of rhetoric and also in terms of certain kinds of organizations like the Foundation for Economic Education through the um, movement of their literature uh, to India through organizations like the Libertarian Social Institute and the appearance of certain um, I suppose, excerpts of the writing of thinkers like Ludwig von Mises and Hayek. Uh, Indians get a selective uh, picture of some of those ideas. And so I think it's important that the history of neoliberalism is also the history of not neoliberals, right? Um, and that it is significant that it is this group of people who are reacting to um, a particular set of changes in Indian political economy, right, are actually taking up this rhetoric, even though um, they differ from some of its orthodoxies, right? Um, and I think related to that, it's important to understand that the Swatantra figures are by and large not formal economists, right? And I'm not in this book interested in the history of economic theory, but as I say in the introduction about economic consciousness and communication, Right. The communication of economic ideas by that intermediary stratum of figure who is not the, the high priest of economic theory, nor is the ordinary person, although I'll come to that, uh, I come to that later in the book, um, but rather the this politician or publicist, the informal economic thinker uh, who develops economic common sense, right? So that's something that, uh, you know, when we think about the movement from... Uh, the Montpellier society, which is, I wouldn't say purely intellectuals, but is dominated by uh, its intellectuals, right? Um, this is something that the, the diffusion of ideas um, means that you're not moving from intellectual to intellectual. You're moving from 
sometimes you're moving from intellectual to um, intellectual to, you know, uh, Siraj Gopalachari, who is uh, a sort of self-styled, you know, thinker in, in, in many ways, in terms of his economic ideas and understandings, an autodidact, right? So I think that's important. And I think the, the final point is about what, what you say about the Cold War, which is that a lot of the Mopalana society figures in the 40s and 50s um, are interested in, you know, the domestic or Atlantic context. Uh, and so they're not necessarily thinking about this specifically in Cold War terms, although they will make arguments about, for example, most famously with Hayek, um, you know, the road to serfdom, which he writes right before, he, you know, founding the um, the uh, Montpellerin Society. But in the Indian context, right, um, the discourse of neoliberalism is understood to be a Cold War discourse, right? Free economy versus socialist economy, right? Um, East Berlin versus West Berlin, like states of control versus free economy in one of B.R. Shanoi's articles. And so this becomes in the local context where you have a vibrant communist movement, where you have a lot of, um, you know, dissemination of ideas uh, about communism and socialism, uh, something that has got uh, a very, uh, I think, substantial um, uh, Indian version, right? Um, these ideas attract a different kind of maybe more combative orientation. Right. And I think, um, you know, that the point about economic consciousness is also, um, you know, one that you you um, explicate quite beautifully in the book in terms of thinking about, um, you know, the idiom of, and, and when I earlier mentioned neoliberalism, which is very often conflated with libertarianism, conservatism, um, this, this sort of English idiom of, um, you know, since we begin with the Libertarian Social, Social Institute, um, of this kind of abstract economic idea, which then takes on a kind of um, Indian, um, you know, tenor in terms of how it's communicated. So, you know, you have Raj Gopalachari uh, talking about um, license and permit Raj, um, and then you also have the construction of the common man, right, as this figure who is the afflicted, um, you know, in, in this larger kind of um, project of, um, uh, you know, um, making um, the economy, as it were, unfree and, and free. And um, so if you could kind of talk to how that... Um, uh, you know the this this shift of idiom happens, um, and and the larger kind of stakes of community communicating these ideas, um, because on on the one level it is very much as you point out, um, you know something that is, um, you know uh, easy to kind of think of in a diffusionist model where you have these ideas floating around in the world and then they're kind of taken up. Um, in the Indian um, context, but what you present is, um, you know, both at the kind of national and regional levels, um, there is a different kind of circulation um, that happens, right? Um, and and also, um, 
different kinds of stakeholders in terms of the communities who are kind of uh, interpolated in the process, right? You have the Patidars, you have the Reddies, you have... So um, if you can, if you can, you know, uh, give our les- listeners a sense of um, what that project entails of um, shifting this idiom um, of, um, you know, the larger project um, as an economic abstract to um, something that can be put into practice. Uh, that would be yeah, great. absolutely. So <clears throat> I suppose one of the really important pieces of work in terms of helping me think about what I was doing, which I came to relatively late in the in the stage of preparation of the book, is this absolutely um, brilliant essay by James Vernon called Heathrow and the Making of Neoliberal Britain, right? Where he essentially takes Heathrow as the first major airport that is privatized um, and looks at a set of things that are happening to it um, and the ways in which uh, it conveys certain kinds of uh, well, or it, it, it puts into practice certain kinds of neoliberal ideas um, and which which deviate from any script of, uh, you know, here is what, here are a certain set of commandments of the Mont Pelerin society uh, in one sense. Um, but also, right, if for people who are cynical of the terminology of neoliberalism, right, um, there, for example, uh, Amy Offner in her book, Sorting Out the Mixed Economy, argues that, you know, sometimes this is just a retrospective uh, label that is applied. Uh, and if we are to kind of take it back, it's actually quite anachronistic. Even if we examine in the kind of heyday of mixed and development, uh, developmental, mixed economies and developmental state, welfare and developmental states, um, you see that there are substantial operation of private capital um, and that, you know, really... Uh, that which is is neoliberal is maybe not as neoliberal as we think it is. Whichever way you fall on that, right? Um, a picture is worth a thousand words, <laughs> and so the you know the uncovering of how exactly this purported ideology plays out um, is really quite valuable, right? And so <clears throat> my own project as I uh, you know as I, I sort of the scales fell from my eyes and I saw wow look you know James Byrne is doing what I am seeking to do although I don't necessarily consider my figures as neoliberal um, was to say okay well you have this political movement that emerges in a particular context right it is being in a sense driven by certain changes in economy and society um, and it is capturing the imaginations of um, groups that are undergoing economic uh, transitions, right, in South and West India, which are, again, very crudely, formerly riot-wary uh, land areas where revenue is collected from the uh, landowning cultivator. Again, this is an idealized vision, uh, but it does correspond to a you know a form of land settlement in in the colonial era, and these are also regions that are bordered by the you know large bodies of of, of water, right? They have long distance trade, so they are regionally different places in which you know landowning dominant castes are moving toward a commercial form of activity. 
Um, they are you know, moving from agriculture to agro processing. Uh, they're investing agricultural surpluses and developing, you know, building up real estate. And they're kind of um, becoming involved in uh, activities that with the advent of, you know, post-colonial economic policy are now creating new entanglements with the state, right? And they're not very happy about it. So it's in that context, right? Uh, in that, with that kind of structural foundation, right? That uh, we must understand uh, the critiques that are being leveled. Um, and those are a different set of considerations from, you know, what you know, figures in the North of, La- North, they're not, completely distinct but but from figures what figures in the north atlantic are dealing with um, and these are figures who are now dealing in india with you know enfranchisement which they have not experienced before right and so it's a new form of political mobilization and in that context it's significant to note that one of these landowning dominant communities that are moving towards you know, new forms of economic activity are the tamil brahmins who are also experiencing kind of political decline in in, in, in South India, in, in you know, what was Madras state, then becomes Tamil Nadu. Um, and Rajgopalachari, as uh, the most prominent Tamil Brahmin politician of his era, right? And But this is, a, of course, an elite concern, right? Um, and the question then becomes, well, how do you convey the concerns that you have to a broader audience, And I think this is where the term permit and license Raj, which continues to be used in parlance today to describe the pre-1991 economy uh, or the elements of it that, you know, uh, that uh, continue to remain um, is, is coined, right? And the permit license Raj is, according to Raj Gopalachari, an oligarchic coalition of interests, um, which are the... Congress party politicians, right? influential Congress party politicians, the bureaucrats of the state, and big business. Big business gives money to the Congress party to elect uh, these Congress politicians who then instruct their bureaucrats to preferentially allocate licenses uh, and permits to operate within the, you know, uh, the planned economy. Um, and who loses out? Who loses out is your upstanding um, b- business owner who wants to set up, uh, uh, set, set up a sh- set up shop, um, or who needs foreign exchange in order to import machinery to produce, uh, you know, commodities uh, for the Indian economy. Who loses out? You know, the, your your um, you know family that has to wait for uh, tons of time before they're able to get. Uh, you know, uh, permits for something, right? So the idea is that the substantive content of democracy is also being hollowed out because elections are being puppeteered by by big business, um, and and I think that that is a, a, a critique uh, which we sometimes forget uh, because. You know, you always think about it as, oh, well, you know, this is really about the plethora of regulations that people are dealing with. Yes, sure. But that's part of a wider critique of, of democracy, right? And it is one that it has some structural foundations in that when the Malanobis Committee looks at um, 
the way in which uh, the Indian economy has developed in the 1960s, it does see that you have, you know, sharp rises in inequality. The Hazari Commission looks at the allocation of licenses and says, yeah, they're disproportionately going to a few business houses. Now, it is, again, not the caricature that it is made, uh, but there's something there that catches on. And, of course, this becomes a, um, you know, a very attractive term because everybody's dealing with the permits or many people are dealing with the permits and licenses and because it's put as Raj in that why the freedom of of India is now from the British Raj but we have a new Raj of the permits and licenses which are the instruments by which the Congress uh, is becoming the new authoritarian right so that is the the critique and who does the license Raj affect it affects the common man it affects the middle class citizen right and these are two constructions um, that don't necessarily correspond to a real um, very substantial constituency right uh, and the swatantra party when it goes out and here we come to this idea of economic communication right uh, when it goes out into uh, the field so to speak um, it takes a lot of pains to produce uh, cartoons and various other forms of kind of visual culture to convey a common man, right, who looks suspiciously like R.K. Lakshman's common man in the Times of India, which again is somebody who isn't really middle class if you look at the income distribution of India at the time. Uh, it's somebody who clearly understands English or somebody who's pretty well-dressed, uh, somebody who is fairly familiar with the goings-on in Delhi is quite an elite figure, but represented as middle class um, in order for Swatantra as politicians to convey that they're actually doing, uh, pursuing a cause of wider social purchase, right? Um, it's, of course, something that resonates more with the only 1 million of about 300 million Indians who are, or 350 million Indians who are of the professional class, Um but it's also trying to create a particular kind of class politics, right? Which maybe are not um, in, in, in key with the conditions in India at the time. Um, but it becomes an alternative uh, that they want people to uh, kind of embrace as opposed to concerns of, uh, of identity, um, as opposed to, um, you know, uh, uh, concerns and, and identity on the vectors of both religion uh, and and caste, um, and as well as as well as a region. So that's the, that's the project, right? Um, and it is one that, of course, is is a very difficult one to pull off, because they can't even agree on what is the middle class citizen, you know, um, and you, uh, one of the things that I show in the book is how there are various different definitions. Somebody says, oh, this is somebody who earns 25,000 rupees a month. Another person says this is a cultivator or a shopkeeper or a uh, landowning, uh, a small landowning peasant, you know, and then it's visually represented as somebody who's working in an office in Bombay, right, in kind of stable employment. So there's really no... Um, there's really no uh, coherent vision of what this middle class person is and whether or not that kind of a concept even makes sense in the India of that time. Um, and it's interesting because while this is something that I study within that particular historical moment, right, if you were to read um, uh, the, the journalist Rukmini's book, uh, Whole Numbers and Half-Truths, um, 
she looks at surveys about how people conceive of themselves class base you know on a class basis uh and what their actual material realities are with respect to the income distribution it's something that's very often at odds we all think that we're middle class right nobody's going to put up your hand and say look i'm a plutocrat and in terms of the <clears throat> the poorer but upwardly mobile people often prefer not to say that no i think of myself as as uh, you know lower class or working class um i think of myself as middle class so it's in that sense it becomes an aspirational category but it also becomes a a category to make oneself look more kind of respectable uh, you know uh, respectable and less elite right right yeah no and i i think that that's very important right the um the resonance of the middle class as as a category is is not something that um is suddenly limited to um the indian context it travels you know quite widely um and i think you know as as you point out it's um everyone uh thinks of themselves as middle class because um they always either position themselves higher or lower than you know and in many cases um people who are quite well healed um always think of themselves as poorer than you know the actual kind of billionaire class and that's something that i found um quite useful in the way that you presented um you know the construction of the the license and permit raj is that um what you were describing in terms of uh, raj gopalachari's uh, contention is um exactly kind of the anti crony capitalist um you know um idea behind which which is seen as one of the the pillars of um neoliberalism as it were as as an ideology which is which also kind of then points to um the fact that this um ultimately ends up being quite an opaque ambiguous incoherent project right um that accommodates a lot more in terms of um criticisms of um the the classes that it was uh in some ways um you know um beholden to as well in in some sense right um or or was at least seen as 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 beholden to um in in terms of the um small but but sizable kind of capitalist class um in india at that time right um yeah absolutely i think that so on the one hand my take on swatantra is that we have to look at the you know small or or, or medium um, size regional but prominent uh, in terms of their influence uh, businesses uh, and communities that uh, that that get behind the party to complicate the traditional characterization of swatantra as a party of you know maharajas and big business um but yes it is also true that swatantra party is getting money from you know the, the the very biggest of big businesses which is which is the tatas right um but where i and and there are there are tensions obviously in that um but at the same time uh it is significant that 
the Tatas uh, are also contributing, you know, twice as much money to the Congress and that, you know, the Birlas, for example, and this is where I think we have to drive a wedge in within the big business class itself, are not interested in Swatantra at all and continue to support the Congress because it's where their nest is feathered. Um, and so, you know, with, with any, you know, large political formation, uh, there are going to be you know, various kinds of sometimes even conflictual groups that run lines of support and people who are supporting things for different reasons. Um, but I think, you know, were I to, to, to draw the distinction, right, what's interesting about Swatantra is not the big national capitalists who, you know, right in the 40s, they write the Bombay plan and um, they are, uh, you know, kind of your... Uh, the champions of industry, so to speak, the JRD Tatas, Pidlas, Vadias, etc. of the world. Um, But really, it's your, um, you know, Charotar Patidas who are running Amul, um, or your, you know, your, your, your Gounders uh, in South India, right, who later become in, you know, Sharad Chari's brilliant uh, ethnography, um, fraternal capitalists, um, producing textiles for the global market, right? Right. Yeah. No, and I, I think that's um, really, um, you know, important to also consider in terms of the, the scales that you're, um, you're traversing. Um, and that actually brings me to, you know, the next question that I had in terms of your um, larger kind of methodological approach to this project. So we heard earlier that, you know, this began with um, your your interest both in the liberalization of India and then you know your your research on Galbraith, um, but I'm also wondering how um, you know, and and one of the the brilliant but really challenging uh, um, you know parts of your book, uh, which you know, given. Um, who you are, it makes sense. But but the only way I could think of it was um, a Bollywood masala film in that it accommodates so many different kinds of, of um, you know, um, ideas and, and approaches. It's so on the surface, it looks like an economic history, right? Uh, but it is so much more. It is a community history. It can also be, um, you know, linguistic history, history of print culture, because, you know, so much of it is invested in the vernacular and the development of these publics in uh, particularly uh, the the Gujarati and um, Tamil public sphere. But you also have, you know, your Hindi literature, etc., that that come up. Um so I, I'm wondering, as as you know, uh, a methodological um, archival question, um, how did you kind of come up with um, an approach for um, conceiving of these different elements together? Um, you know, w- was it more happenstance, or was there um, something more concrete? That that emerged as you went along. Yeah. So no, th- thank you, thank you for that. I, I, you know, to me, the the most interesting thing about doing history is about uh, thinking through what are the plurality of sources one can use to approach history. And I suppose for the 
for the uninitiated listener, uh, I should say that I do know Archit from uh, outside the New Books Network context, um, and he 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 very kindly plugged the fact that you know I uh, have have trained in the past at the at the Barry John Acting School um, and retain a lifelong fascination and abiding. Uh, impossible uh impossible dream to 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 star in in, in cinema myself um hey well you've produced a, a film <laughs> in some ways with this book the masala film has been produced at least in, in right. the academic and, and, uh, context so one of the pieces of one of the sources in the book is a uh is a, a, a short scene of a video footage from uh, reuters about the uh inaugural convention of the Sutantra Party that's held actually at a film studio in Bombay, August 1st to 2nd, 1959. Uh, and it was a great joy to find that. Um, but I think that brings me to the sort of broader point about sources, right? which is that the book uses sources ranging from uh, gramophone recordings that I found at this gramophone recording museum in Kerala to... Uh, government-produced statistics and time series to uh, short stories and children's books, right, too. And I think the idea is that if we want to understand economic consciousness, right, we have to take it off of the page of the economic journal and think about where all uh, we can find it, right. Um, And I think this is linked to the question of how do you write a post-colonial history of South Asia? And I imagine other parts of the world as well, for which we don't have the extraordinary records that are kept, let's say, for example, for for a country like France. Um, And methodologically, I found two particular uh, historians in their work quite influential. Um, The first is uh, my, you know, my, my sort of teacher uh, and, and friend, uh, inspiration, A.R. Venkatachalapati, um, who is a historian of, uh, well, various things of, of South India primarily, um, but has done a lot of work on the history of uh, print culture and sort of material histories of um, cultural practices. So, for example, everything from you know, coffee drinking to perceptions of the city as a space for... Uh, um, you know, tr- tricksters and thugs uh, to the history of, you know, dirty words and swearing. Um, and I think it was kind of in, in reading his collection of essays, uh, which is called in those days, there were no coffee and other essays um, that I began to think about really the, you know, a, a range of sources that one can bring to bear in a study of um, uh, you know, of, of modern India, right? Um, the second major influence uh, was a, his, is a historian called Rudolf Mrazek, um, who may be familiar to those people who work on Southeast Asia and those who, who, those who are interested in STS. Um, he wrote a book called Engineers of Happy Land, uh, uh, Technology and Nationalism in a Colony, um, about the way in which national identity is forged, in a sense, through various kinds of infrastructure projects. Um, in Indonesia, uh, or, or you know, and uh, or the late colonial kind of Dutch East Indies, um, and in that he says that he's basically followed um, 
the the questions to wherever they lead him now of course that's not entirely accurate because you have to you know there there are ways of following the questions and there are ways of following the questions but he uses everything from the motorcyclist journals to you know memoirs um, and he says that that which we t- traditionally associate with drudgery and pain which is the disorganization of archives uh, often in the global south and there's no way of uh, you know i'm not not saying that as a criticism but it just happens to be the way that they are um that that's actually a good thing because it forces us to be more creative and to improvise right and the unintentionality uh, you know of of the way in which uh, was un- unintentionally wrong word but the but the the serendipity of you know uh, like the box of chocolates in forest gump not knowing which one you get when you request a file um is really uh, something that can be productive um if you're not operating on an, uh, you know necessarily you know tight time scale or with particular expectations of what your archive is going to throw at you so i think that's important and i think that those two people did what i believe you know tim harper and sunil amrit in their book sites of asian interaction called the reimagining of the archive right in the wake of the cultural turn in the wake of all of the extremely sophisticated and important critique that has been done of the archive and the way that we fetishize it and so that then raises the question of okay well um where all at least for me where all can we find economic thinking um and economic communication economic consciousness in areas that are not where we conventionally associate with the economic and i found that you know without loosening that terminology too much it's it's really everywhere right and i suppose this is something which um you know your your cultural materialists like raymond williams and such would say yeah well of course <laughs> this is this should not be very surprising to you uh but i think the challenge then is of course looking at those materials but thinking about then how do we you know anchor them in uh in ways in which uh you know we're also telling a a, a story about the you know of, of the the history of political economy um and tying this to causal analysis right so that's been um the the way in which i suppose retrospectively i could give you an account of how i developed a method um but really it was following people whose work that i found to be uh you know a, a profound and uh you know off the, off the beaten track and original and really quite exciting um and of course yeah my own i suppose proclivity for what is i mean i suppose a lot of people would consider to be you know declasse or uh uh or or not necessarily your traditional um focus of academic study and i think one of the most exciting moments for me in the process of uh, preparing this book um was when i was pretty close to finishing my dissertation but hadn't really started the book when i met a scholar of hindi literature uh, who works on the 1950s um on 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 print culture and what she called middle brow reading um and you know exchanging exchanging notes with her akriti mandwani she teaches at shivnadar university um and learning about you know the ways in which the nehruvian era was a period in which um there was really this efflorescence of um various kinds of literature that was interpreting 
the changes that were being experienced in society, whether that was through the you know, Nai Kahani movement or the production of particular kinds of pulp fiction, I found, you know, and I, as I, I, I credit her um, for uh, di- discovering this or bringing it to scholarly attention, this book um, called Ek, Ek Gade Ki Atmakata, uh, right? So the autobiography of an ass or a donkey, uh, which is in the sense a you know blistering critique of uh, trying to get things out of the government in the Nehruvian era, right? So there's a sort of the story of a talking donkey who ultimately is, is uh, you know, taken for a spin, I suppose, by Nehru himself. Um, and so, yeah, it's, you know, I suppose that's a very sort of circuitous set of answers to your questions in which um, I would say that I could, you know, one could kind of develop a method, which is to have no straight method um, uh, and read it retrospectively. But I was just following... Uh, what I thought was interesting, but also making the conscious decision that I wanted to try to blend unconventional sources with uh, your your you know your dry government of India reports, which are fantastic, right? But underused because of the general neglect of post-colonial history. We have so much to gain from the the commissions and reports that were published by the Indian state, uh, but we must read them alongside. Um, that which the you know very vibrant public sphere has produced, and bring them together alongside um, the archival connections where we can. I think we do have um, a substantial collection of private individuals' papers uh, that are in you know the Nehru Library uh, in in uh, in the National Archives, um, and there are you know in regional archives that I'm sort of starting to explore, um, and we. Do even though the the um, the file transfers for government of India departments, which I didn't really look at in this uh, in this book, are something that uh, have been erratic. Over time, with digitization, um, with uh, you know certain kinds of individual archivists who are really committed, both I think in certain kinds of state and uh, and local archives and at the national level, you are starting to assemble, and of course, albeit eclectic and partial, um, but a collection of really valuable documents to study the history of, of, of modern South Asia. And it's something that in this website project that um, I've been working on over the last five or six years, uh, the Archives of Economic Life in South and Southeast Asia, um, that it's really extraordinary uh, the many different ways in which we can study the life of the subcontinent outside of uh, you know the the the, the formal uh, government uh, archive. Right. No, thanks so much for that, Aditi. I, I think there was a um, a lot in there, especially useful for you know um, researchers venturing into the archives and. Uh, encountering a lot of NTs, um, particularly in the National Archives of India, um, but seeing opportunity in that and, and seeing that um, uh, more creatively and, and not um, as much about reading along or against the grain, but really kind of looking for different kinds of granularities, um, which I think is 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 really powerful and, um, you know, inspiring for, for those um conducting um research in, in these sorts of spaces. Um I also want to touch upon um you know um the project of doing um economic history 
um, in terms of um, thinking about the ways in which the the neoclassical Keynesian um, kind of orthodoxy um, allows for a certain kind of narrative um, to be, you know, presented as kind of um, straightforward or or one that doesn't have, you know, um, other kinds of um, of possibilities or alternatives. And I, I want to tie that also to, you know, the, the note that you end this book on in terms of um, presenting this as an alternative that existed um, in history, one, albeit that is not ideal, um, but existed nonetheless. Um, so I, I, I wonder if, it might be useful for us to kind of reflect on the idea of alternatives, both in the sphere of politics and economics as, as something that you kind of point us towards. Um, and of course, you know, within economics, we know that um, the, the mainstream economic thinking doesn't really account for, for um the heterodox kind of tradition, but that is also very alive and rich. Um, so yeah, I, I wonder if you know you could you could um, you know give us your perspective on how you see these the idea of the alternative, which is you know something that you um, end your book on so powerfully, um, is something that gives us also a sense of um, what exists outside of the mainstream. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you so much for that that question. It's something that I think about a lot because I teach um, a history of economic thought course um, to students who are not from a history background and who are very much schooled in the neoclassical orthodoxy. Uh, and the idea is to <clears throat> explain to them that that which is pre- you know presented to you in your textbook of coherent concepts actually has a history. Uh, it's often that which those things which are seen as laws or intuitively obvious are not in fact so um, and that uh, what has been naturalized over time right um, is really something that in terms of a you know set of concepts neoclassical microeconomics Keynesian macroeconomics um, and has kind of locked us into certain ways of thinking right um, is something that with this understanding of history, uh, we can think through uh, perhaps, you know, more appropriate um, uh, alternatives for understanding our present. And I think that in the example that I always give is the sort of debate on price controls and the historian of economic thought and my friend Isabella Weber, who's been at the forefront of uh, trying to understand what is uh, possible with price controls if they're done uh, well, uh, thinking through both American World War II era uh, and uh, Chinese 1980s uh, practices. Um, and it's something that uh, I think is in this book, what I've tried to do is to think about, okay, well, Swatantra is conventionally associated with free market capitalism, or it is conventionally associated with either that on the one hand or you know, um, feudalism of the of the zamindars, but to suggest that no, I don't think either of those is 
uh, is fair. Uh, and actually, there are a plurality of visions that, of course, there is a lowest common denominator uh, around which uh, it, it kind of coheres politically. And there are on kind of four issues, right? One is anti-communism. Two is the defense of private property. Um, three is unfettered you know, economic activity. Um, um, and uh, and the fourth is... Um, uh, decentralization, right? Um, but that within that, there are so many different forms uh, that can be taken that it's really, and, and visions that are kind of thrown up, uh, that we we ought to look at that seriously because these are actually, and, and they're, they're not fanciful, uh, these are actually ideas that are thought of by people and based on certain kinds of practices. Uh, one of the interesting places to go is, uh, is to the writings of N.G. Ranga, um, who is the, the uh, president of the Sudantra Party uh, and is a sort of long-standing parliamentarian who does not have a prog- particularly progressive politics in, uh, in, the, in the local context, even though he was at the forefront of anti-Zamindari. Uh, he's somebody who represents uh, rich Rayatwari peasants, right? And he is somebody who is against land ceilings. But if you were to look at his book, The Credo of World Peasantry, he is proposing something um, like a global system for the coordination of agricultural prices, so that farm uh, that you know agricultural interests in the in the global south are given remunerative remunerative prices, and um, so that they don't fall below a certain amount for their agricultural goods, um, and avoid uh, you know, the kinds of distress that. Uh, various sections of of, of of Indians face during the, the Great Depression. Um, he's somebody who is very invested in what he used to call, uh, you know, colored and colonial people solidarity, right? He's in conversation with people like Jomo Kenyatta and George Padmore, right? He gets some of his bearings from visits to uh, the International uh, Labor Organization in the interwar period, um, examines forms of land tenure in Sweden and Denmark when he's studying in the in the UK. So, you know, globally coordinated system of prices looks very for to provide remuneration to agriculture. Um, you know, looks very different from you know uh, uh, something that you know is, is conceived of by a North Atlantic economist sitting in um, you know I, I suppose it's a place like the University of Chicago, right? Um, and I think even though the sensibilities of these people are not necessarily progressive. It is worth looking um, at their their critiques and concerns. Uh, to me, License Raj is something is a, the, the the impetus behind License Raj um, is uh, or or the way in which it is expressed at the time, right? Is is something that is uh, actually a commentary on Indian political economy today. You know, um, where you have uh, an electoral bond system that disproportionately benefits one party where you have certain plutocratic capitalist interests who have done so much better than everybody else over the last uh, uh, decade um, and where you have um, a certain preferential set of allocation of um, things like spectrum license to certain firms rather than others right um, and it's not necessarily just a critique of, of you know this regime but also of of, of, of previous regimes as well so you know, I think that that there is a lot here, 
um, that we can take, even if these are not our politics. Um, and then the second question is about in terms of the rise of strongmen authoritarians across the world uh, and the collapse of dissent um, and what an opposition party can do uh, in terms of trying to make democratic life um, richer uh, and one that provides more resistance to uh, the, the dominant currents of the times, right? Um, and I think that there is a function, of course, which is about winning seats, uh, stringing together alliances, as Swatantra does with people who seem surprising. You know, the DMK, perhaps most prominently, in the uh, is their alliance partner in 1967. Uh, even though, <clears throat> you know, the DMK probably didn't need them to win, um, they do provide a function for uh, the DMK in terms of in respectable or whatever so-called polite society. Um, similarly, there are uses of parliamentary procedure, right, to promote accountability of the ruling party. Um, you know, the promotion of things like no confidence motions and whether or not these are successful is one thing. But it's also about providing a record uh, and communicating um, a certain model of principled opposition politics, uh, to society, which includes, you know, writing in the public sphere, right, uh, in terms of it's a certain kind of uh, attachment to, in, in one sense, paternalistic practice of pedagogy, <clears throat> but in another, also taking the responsibility of being a representative official uh, and being uh, a public-facing uh, citizen of a society uh, to, to try to uh, both critique uh, constructively um, and to resist. So I think those are things that I would I would take away from this history that I think are salient for our times. Um, without, but doing so in a way that is uh, is dispassionate, right? And without uh, and, and and without I think uh, you know glorifying. Um, the, uh, the historical actors that 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 we read, um, uh, and I think it's been an interesting uh, experience for me because these are not uh, political interests uh, who I sympathize with in my own, <clears throat> you know, ideals. Uh, uh, but there are there are people whom I believe we can take something constructive away from. Uh, and I think that in an environment of increasing kind of polarization, uh, right, I'm thinking not just about India, but in various parts of the world, um, uh, I think making sense of that kind of a, a commonality, uh, or, you know, in, in humanity, uh, despite divergent interests, uh, and thinking about who, you know, who, who can we valuably learn from and wh where can we draw the lines. Um, um, this process has been quite instructive for me. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think that is a, a wonderful note to kind of um, end the discussion of the book on to kind of think about um, the ways in which the the democratic consensus has shifted in the present to be, um, you know, very kind of clearly bipartisan. But of course, a historical perspective gives us um, a sense in which there were... Um, complexities and ambiguities attached to that 
kind of bipartisan divide as well. And uh, given that it is a spectrum, um, you know, um, the the political spectrum always allows for um, more room for for different kinds of experiments to emerge. And and the hope is that um, some others that we haven't kind of imagined or, or envisioned yet uh, might. Um, so on that note, um, I, I think it would be good for our listeners also to get a sense of what you're um, working on next, uh, which I got um, to hear a little bit about um, earlier in terms of, you know, research that you're, you're um, actively engaged in. Um, but if you could shed more light on that for our listeners, yeah, that'd be great. Sure. So I'm working on a couple of things. Uh, the first is a long-term project on the history of family businesses between South and Southeast Asia, right? Uh, and that is a project in which I am hoping that each chapter would be um, the microhistory of an individual family, right? Um, because there's a substantial body of work that has been done on the Indian Ocean region, focused on kind of ethnographies of communities. Um, there's a, a lot of work on the, the Bay of Bengal with respect to um, labor migration, right? Also, and 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 what I'm interested in is to think about you know one step removed from that, um, the kind of middling, uh, you know, a, a, a commercial interests. Uh, and and also communities that, you know, like for example the watchmen of the Sikh watchmen of uh, you know Malaya, uh, who then become money lenders and start their small firms and this sort of thing. So thinking about the ties of capital that connect the Bay of Bengal region, uh, but from the perspective of the you know individual firm, um, and also from the, the so perspective of the sort of social relations of the family. So again, to think of, you know, economy and culture, um, and also to think about, you know, how these kinds of histories can be written away from the legal archive, right, where you have a lot of, you know, litigation, disputes, etc. Um, and, the, the I suppose the question that animates this is, you know, what is it like to be a South Asian in the 19th or 20th century um, to cross the seas uh, and set up not to work in a plantation or as a laborer, uh, but in some kind of employment right back to the family, maybe bring them over, set up a firm. Um, and what is the experience uh, at the this time of, you know, uh, um, increasingly uh, you know, new forms of, of, of technology for communication and transport, etc. How is it globalization and I suppose the advent of um, a certain transcregional capital um, experienced uh, from these the southern hemisphere and the and the colonial world? So that's the that's the that's one project. Um, the second project is uh, a history of roads, road building and road transport in South Asia, uh, focused on India. Um, and again, this is a project that um, is interested in connecting economic life as I studied it or as part of the series in which my book appears, but connecting that to environmental life. Um, and it's something that I think a lot of recent work has, or recent discussions have laid like all the 
uh, all the blame for climate change on the altar of colonialism, right? But I think what's important to understand is that very often post-colonial states um, accepted those terms and ident- intensified the forms of resource consumption, understanding that, look, if we don't modernize in this way, we perish. Um, and so the idea is to bring together colonial and post-colonial history to understand how a country like India has come to have the world's largest, uh, 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 the world's uh, largest or second largest network of, sorry, now world's largest led network of roads that were mostly built after 47, um, that are uh, more than 80% actually village and district roads. Uh, and that in an era of, uh, of, of, uh, you know, humans increasing, you know, impact on the environment. Um, uh, one that is, is a sort of trend that sees no no uh, sign of abating, um, in a context in which uh, India has become the world's third largest uh, automotive market. It has three times as many two wheelers as four wheeled uh, and more automotives, um, and kind of thinking through. Uh, the ways in which uh, these, you know, developmental dreams have fueled certain forms of resource uh, 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 consumption, um, and also to think about ways in which uh, there are alternatives to the script, um, in 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 terms of the conventional transition toward. Uh, 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 motorized vehicles. Uh, what forms of persistence uh, of the past pervade this in the South Asian present? Kind of uh, flipped script. Uh, so, for example, the persistence of the of the bullock cart uh, is one thing. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a it's a sort of history of, you know, I suppose, India and the world, but also of you know India specifically, um, and in in in. For today's times, and the focus again is uh, very much cited in that I'm looking at the Grand Trunk Road, uh, a national highway, a village road, and the history of uh, Chennai's first flyover. Wow, sounds incredible, in, and very much in the spirit of your if of this book as well. Um, really takes on a lot and and thinks of this um, these kinds of themes in the most expansive way possible. Thanks so much for being in conversation, Aditya, and it was a pleasure to to discuss um, Toward a Free Economy at greater length. Thank you so much, Archit, for your wonderful questions and great enthusiasm.